Chapter 8 of The Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 8 Two Sorts of Solitude. The bird, a nest. The spider, a web. Man, friendship. Blake, Proverbs of Hell. One morning in the beginning of July, Andrew asked Miss Tyrell to go with him to the play and the forces of Physistia and Bohemia went to war in her mind. Muriel had been placed upon the committee of the Psychodeistic League, and its annual meeting was to take place at her house. On these occasions, Vince always took refuge in musical comedy. He went, as a rule, alone, laughed without restraint at the horseplay jokes and topical songs, luxuriated in the vague emotions which were evoked by the more amorous passages, observed with understanding the physical charms of the performers. But this year, in one of those spasms of philanthropy which are indistinguishable from self-indulgence, he had conceived the notion of giving Constance a treat. He spoke of it to Muriel, who was depressingly tolerant but hardly encouraging. "'Miss Tyrell,' she said, "'will scarcely care for your kind of theatre, will she? "'I had been thinking that next time there was anything good at the stage, "'I would give her your ticket. "'She's really very cultivated, you know. "'Girton, in fact, and she reads all the right things. "'The popular drama exasperates that type of mind. "'But you might ask her. "'It will be a kindness. "'And I can't have her here that evening. "'The inner circle meets, and only members are admitted.' Andrew was a little grieved. He had hoped for a jealousy, which he would certainly have discountenanced, and the excessive breadth of Muriel's mind, in which he could not help seeing something slightly unwomanly, discounted the joys of the undertaking. But his spirits were raised when he perceived that Constance, at any rate, felt her decision to be governed by considerations of propriety. No male creature likes to feel harmless. Andrew's self-respect was stimulated by the fact that he had to persuade Miss Tyrell that the civility he offered was neither unusual nor objectionable in such a friendship as theirs. That friendship, founded on Vince's refreshingly materialistic point of view, had been confirmed by the addition of a new element, the hopeless determination in both of them to admire in Muriel all those fascinations which were most at variance with her intellectual claims. They talked like rival lovers of her beauty and disputed the supremacy of each feature over the rest. She was the unending subject of their conversation. Andrew had come to recognize the bookshop as the one place in which he might speak freely and enthusiastically of his wife, and Constance looked for his coming because he brought with him some of the glamour which hung about the aggravating object of their adoration. To her, this was but the renewal of an experience which had been constant in her girlhood, that feverish and bewildering period in which the sonorous rhythms of the classics that she wished to love had seldom succeeded in drowning the throb of life that exasperated her nerves and confused her brain, had been characterized by the savage and shamefaced emotion which she poured out unasked at the feet of certain chosen women. Her attitude towards them, always shy and always passionate, was seldom appreciated and never understood. Some had taken advantage of it and made demands on her. 
These she had served with an almost tiresome eagerness, so that they soon became indifferent to her affection. Others had never perceived the existence of the sentiment. These she preferred, for she was able, in their case, to preserve her illusions intact. She proposed, if possible, to keep Mrs. Vince in this fortunate ignorance, an undertaking which was made easier by the presence of a fellow victim upon whom one could inflict the enthusiasms that might otherwise have become tediously apparent to their object. To these circumstances Vince owed the secure and comfortable position which he now occupied in her life. Few things seem safer than a platonic friendship, which is founded upon a conspiracy to admire the wife of one of the parties concerned. Constance then accepted Andrew's invitation, and to the amazement of the watcher, devoted a Saturday afternoon to the renovation of her only evening dress. He wished to be out in the sun, seeing beautiful shapes, for nature appeared to him now as the one enticing aspect of the dream. Compared with this exploration of beauty, these magical encounters with the real, all other occupations seemed but foolishness and he hated the necessity which made his every movement dependent on his entertainer's whims. Hence, when she paid no attention to his reiterated hints, disgust grew on him, and there was a note of irritation in his remonstrances. Surely, he said, you must see the extreme absurdity of your behavior, that even on your own interpretation of the facts, your actions are entirely inconsistent. You shut yourself in a space that has no beauty, in order that you may concentrate on dress, dress. How came you, I wonder, to think of that insane device? She was busy. His comments distracted her. We do it, she answered rather angry, because we, also, like to add to outer beauty, if we can. Add to beauty? How can you add to the beauty by these masses of queer and colored rags, spun from the poor patient plants and animals, and chopped to inconvenient shapes? Why, it is but more dust in different patterns, rolled round you, in order to conceal the mysterious body underneath. A curious mania, when all that matters is the soul, which is already assured of secrecy, which no one in the body can ever see. One body, I had thought, were enough disguise for the shyest spirit. Yet you must all, it seems, have two at least, and elevate the fashioning of the second to a very solemn thing. But the result of this fashioning can never add to beauty, for it is meant to hide, not to express the real. Constance was intent on the lady's own magazine, which assured its readers that a very French effect might be secured by the application of two yards of black crêpe de chine and some spangled fringe to an old white satin bodice, an operation which it described as well within the powers of the home worker. She was a woman. She was preparing for a probably delightful evening with her only friend. She was determined that he should have no cause to be ashamed of her appearance. It is therefore hardly surprising that she found the phenomena beneath her fingers more interesting than the inner witness to their unreality. She went on with her work, keeping one eye upon Vera, who showed a disposition to begin illicit dolls' dressmaking at the other end of the crêpe de chine, 
and resolutely turning her attention from the fretful voice which urged on her its ignorance, its annoyance, and her duty of conciliation and enlightenment. But he would not let her be. He said again, I suppose that you are compelled to believe in your body, and this distresses you? And so you cover it with pretenses in which even you can hardly believe. Then, exasperated, she cried aloud, No, I am proud of it, I love it. I, at any rate, have never been ashamed. Vera loosed her end of the crêpe dropped the scissors and said reproachfully, Tante, how queer you shouted, you shouldn't, it made me jump. Constance was abruptly recalled to the consideration of a body in which it was certainly very difficult to take pride, for even when freshly washed and dressed in the clean clothes which she detested, Vera always carried with her a curious suggestion of squalor. She had hands which defied the nail-brush, and looked as though even her white pinafores had come to her by mistake. They never remained white very long, for dirt of all kinds flew to her, as if detecting congenial company. Miss Tyrell heard a regular liquid sound, as of surreptitious sucking, looked up, and exclaimed sharply, "'Take that stuff out of your mouth at once!' The child unwillingly extracted a dark and glutinous mass, composed of a rag of black silk, which had met a half-dissolved piece of toffee and become inextricably entwined with it. The resulting compound was not pleasant to handle, but it was necessary to take it from Vera and ensure its destruction, a proceeding which the victim watched with a sullen scowl. She seldom cried, and never failed to resent authority. Constance, of late, had begun to detest these episodes. It was a part, perhaps, of the growing influence of the watcher, whose homesickness betrayed itself in a passionate aestheticism. The lens through which she had looked for an instant on reality offered no renewal of that vision, but it persistently magnified the hideous properties of those illusions to which she was chained. Upon this stifling afternoon, with the usual summer smells of London coming through the open window, the crooked Venetian blind moving in the draft and making zebra patterns on the shabby wall, this moist, chewy, gummy rag which she must take between her fingers nauseated her. When she had disposed of it, she felt that Vera's neighborhood had become loathsome. She gathered her work, went into the little bedroom, and gave herself with an almost morbid pleasure to the contemplation and analysis of her own fury of disgust. She perceived that she hated her life. Standing aside and looking at it, it seemed to her weary and distorted vision, a mere travesty of existence, an uneventful sequence of sordid material acts. The watcher encouraged this attitude, crying out on his incarceration, casting himself with fury against the bars. Sometimes he was interested, but happy he never was. Urged, then, as by a double spur, there came to her mind a momentary longing to renew the active revolt of her youth, when, stung not by squalor but by the hopeless inertia of the comfortable class, she had cut her way out of the garden and bartered all privilege for a little actuality. 
The crushed primeval spirit of adventure rose and pricked her. This capable wage-earning woman of thirty-five or so, reminding her of those wild raptures and wonderful deeps of existence which form part of the great and confused heritage of the human soul. Then the recoil wave came, bringing a memory of the savage tooth that waits behind those soft lips of nature whose kiss she had once accepted with courage, even with delight. Thence a venom had come which still worked in her life. That experiment was not worth repeating. The old white evening bodice slipped from her knee, and her indifference was so great that she did not put out her hand to save it. One of the bones which had cut its way through the covering sheath caught in a flounce of her skirt. It made a little tear and anchored itself. She rescued her work then, and it reminded her of the brightening margin of her life, of Andrew, who wanted her companionship, and of Muriel, whom she wanted even more. She possessed, after all, the essentials of existence, a little place in the dance, and a little opportunity of service. At a quarter to nine, upon the following Monday evening, Constance arrived at the Tottenham Court Road tube station, and took her place in the lift. Her depression had passed away. She felt happy and dreamy. After her long and sordid solitude, the mere putting on of evening dress was an excitement. It gave to her a curious sensation of well-being, armed her, as it were, for the encounter with life. As the platform rose, taking her to the surface, she contemplated in a mood of slightly cynical amusement the advertisements which covered its walls, appeals every one of them to the supposed needs of man. You cannot afford to do your writing the old way. You want our shirts? We want you. The new note, decorative smartness combined with the comfort of the home. The watcher, too, always entertained by our odd habit of burrowing, our quaint conceits as to the reality of levels, the air of importance which characterizes the running to and fro of modern men. The watcher looked on these things with pleased surprise, saying, strange cries of one immortal spirit to another, but there was another advertisement, less conspicuous, in little red and black letters, without ornament. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. It wore so modest an air amidst all the heraldry of trade that it would hardly have held Constance's attention had he not exclaimed, What's that? That is different, that is real. How has it got into the dream? The long, absent note of fear had returned to his voice, and he said, I'm caught. We all are. How can we be other than deceived? It is we that are mocked, hoodwinked, and made helpless. We stand in great danger, with none to advise us, no power of right judgment, no means of escape, and beyond the eternal idea and eternal seeking within it. O oh, cruel, treacherous, and blinding dream! The words in their simple frame glared out as from another dimension, and drew the great ring of eternity about the small illusions, the childish conveniences, the little scrambles and self-seekings of twentieth-century London life. They followed Constance and her lodger, indeed not truly one, but truly two, to the doors of the theatre. 
they obliterated the smiling portrait of Miss Sybil Selby as Evenette, the little Breton bride. They shone fierce and accusative under the arc lights and passed with them through the violently swinging doors which seemed themselves infected with some exalted and dramatic emotion. Thus they came at last to the corner opposite the box office where Vince awaited his friend. He said to her, Here we are, all ready for a ripping evening, eh? Jolly places, stalls, fourth row, the nicest bit of the house. See everything you want to see and nothing that you don't. I hate to notice the wigs and the rouge. Plenty of them outside in the street. Awfully good piece, too. I've seen it three times, and by Jove, I don't mind if I see it a dozen more. Nice voice, that girl's got, Sybil Selby. Dance as well, neat ankles. Come along, it's time we were in our seats. The curtain rose upon The Little Breton Bride upon a set which ingeniously utilized the caves of Quimper with their many little bridges and a strolling crowd of chorus girls in coifs. The orchestra struck up an airy, worldly waltz, and the hero and his party made a realistic entrance in a Demler 16-horsepower motor, whilst the chorus girls sang an amorous and cheerfully unmeaning intuat appropriate to the business of the night. At once they were in the thick of it, of the swirling, dancing, softly sensuous world. Rhythm and sentiment, cloying melodies and pretty passions, were poured out upon the audience, producing in them an agreeable anesthesia of forgetfulness of all they held for real. Soon their dreamy minds were enchained by the deliberate measure of the dance, the monotonous cadence of the songs. They were at the mercy of those whom they had hired to amuse them, the eternal paradox of the arts. Yet the drugs with which the thing was done were very simple, merely coordinated sounds and movements expressing a gay and incoherent love-tale in which light affections triumphed and the deeps of life were carefully ignored. At the end of the first act, Andrew, cheered by Miss Tyrell's evident enjoyment, said to her, "'Hope you are liking it. Awfully good of you to come, you know.' Just to a thing like this, nothing out of the ordinary, Muriel was afraid you might be bored. Constance looked at him and at the glittering house with its air of sleek smartness and then at the box of chocolates in her lap, and her mouth trembled a little. She was, for the moment, in the position of a protected woman, back amongst the foolish comforts and dear easy habits of a class that she had deliberately left. She answered, it is about eight years since any man waited on me, considered my pleasure, gave me sweets. So is it likely that I should be bored? Vince was genuinely shocked and affected. By Jove, he said, by Jove, poor girl! He had not supposed that bookselling entailed such social ostracism as this. Then he thought, with a little comforting spasm of self-sufficiency, I expect she is jolly particular about whom she does go out with. That explained it. Fatty women always get left in the lurch. The watcher, meanwhile, clamored for some explanation of the proceedings of the night, the lurid and untruthful simulation of an existence that was itself untrue, the crowd of attentive spectators looking eagerly at a false, distorted picture of their own false, distorted lives 
This paradox of the drama was far beyond the understanding of a poor, uneducated spirit for whom even space and time were still foolish and puzzling conventions. If you really like these curious ways, he said, to dance and to sing when you wish to express your feelings, and to kiss one another a great deal, after all, this is not much more foolish than the ordinary ugly, earthly ways, why not do it yourselves instead of watching other people pretend? If this be your standard of beauty, do you not waste time in merely watching? Should you not participate while you can? Rush together, embrace, be ecstatic. Why delegate these picturesque emotions to a race of slaves? Life has strange rules, but this is the strangest, that you should be impelled to enjoy watching in imitation, in a corner, when you might go out and live the real before you die. At the end of the second act, the high-born hero had lifted his peasant bride into his motor-car and held her with one hand against his breast, whilst the other feebly grasped the steering-wheel. He leaned over her with a realistic gesture of protection, singing, Dear little bride, through the world wide, I'll carry my dove in her nest. They may offer us gold or riches untold, but we know that true love is the best. The chorus girls tossed confetti in the air until Miss Sybil Selby, resplendent in lace coif and brocaded apron, seemed another Danaya beneath its significant showers, and the curtain fell as the car moved slowly away to the plaintive and haunting music of violins. Then Andrew turned and saw with astonishment a woman whom he had never known before, a being with softened eyes, absurdly entranced, the magnetism of the play had affected Constance. Her strained vision followed the ridiculous lovers. Her strained ear extracted from the sentimental music the regretful cry of all that she had missed in life. There was a lump in her throat. It was as if some magic power had been mingled with the confetti, pollen from the divine flower which grows upon the walls of might have been. She was invaded by a gentle, sensuous melancholy, by an absurd longing to be kissed. The disdain of reality, the rhythm of the dancers, the mildly voluptuous music, came like an overpowering perfume to enchain her mind, so that the crude emotion of the lovers, the simple insistence on happiness, on the joy and paramount importance of the mating instinct, stung to life something that had long slept. All about them, triumphant sentimentalism was having its way. People leaned forward with shining eyes and slightly foolish smiles. The few detached persons who were amongst the audience enjoyed the ironic spectacle of a house full of prosperous, civilized, and artificial beings, tightly strapped every one of them within the uniform of society, each hair assigned to its place by inexorable law responding in spite of themselves to an irrational and primitive appeal. In every part of the theatre, woman, at the moment, looked at man. How odd, said the watcher, in order to make people natural, you are obliged to resort to artifice. So that is why you make a dream about the dream. But Constance took no notice. The burden of reality had been shifted, 
she was swept away into a joyous, absurd, bespangled country where her starved heart was fed upon emotional meringues and her aching senses were lulled and warmed. She sat thus for a moment or two, holding tight this lovely, selfless sense of wonder, of vivid and exalted life. Then Andrew rose and put her cloak about her shoulders, and she realized with a stab of sorrow that her evening was at an end. In him also, the feast of sensuous melody and mild emotion had woke a certain wistfulness. As they came into the foyer and stood a few moments to let the crowd pass by, he said anxiously, It has been rather jolly, hasn't it? Do it again, eh? Constance looked at him, but did not speak. He continued in an abrupt burst of confidence. We are both a bit out of it, you know, in some ways, so... It's natural enough we should be friends, she exclaimed. You shouldn't feel out of it. You are not alone in the world as I am. You have so many things to care for in your life. She spoke impulsively and was astonished at herself, but his answer astonished her more, he said. Yes, in a way, I know I seem to have, but then, you see, the things aren't really mine. I can't catch on don't fit. I'm rather like that Johnny in the Arabian Nights who went out to dinner and kept on seeing imaginary food he couldn't eat. Nicely dished up, one admires it, but one's hungry all the same. There's Muriel, she's adorable, and she's my wife, of course, but her life's stuffed full of other things. Very natural, she's clever, and I'm not." but she's fenced round by him. I can't get near. She's so young, said Constance gently, and so pretty and enjoying it so much. It must be rather nice to watch her being happy. And after all, she is yours. Oh, it's not that. I don't mind her having a good time, lots of friends running about and so on. I'm not that sort of beast, harem type. Girls must play round, don't you know? One likes it. They all do it, not peculiar in any way, so where's the harm? Very different from what it was in my poor old father's time. But these women, they've got her into a shell of fads. One can't get past, and there she is all the time, attractive as ever and just out of reach. It's a bit maddening. His voice had the growl in it now, and he spoke as if to himself, deliberately and without self-consciousness. There was no knowledge between them of the outrageous quality of their conversation. It had grown, as it were, out of the events of the night. His speech did not strike her as a complaint, a sin against the code of married men. It seemed rather an explanation which he was making to himself. She saw something the essential man in him, the creature of ideals, struggling like a dumb animal against the circumstances of his life. The sight moved her to an almost maternal pity, so that she felt with him as well as for him when he said, One's growing older all the while, too, losing chances, getting fixed, and the whole thing is dreary and jangled up. There she is, as I say, pretty, fetching people envy one. But we live in watertight compartments in our house. My fault. It's a silly mistake. Wish now I'd push things a bit at the start. Then there's the boy. 
bound to keep an eye on him, protect him a bit from the woman. And she doesn't like it, of course. So he's between us as well as the culture and things. That's the damnation of children. Responsible for em. Must do it. You wait till you have one. Constance blushed furiously, and Andrew, instantly contrite, apologized for the violence of his language and returned to his normal state of clumsy shyness. She said, Oh, don't be unhappy. Just be fond of them both. You might enjoy it all so very much. He replied, I am awfully fond, really. If I wasn't, don't you know, I shouldn't care. Fact is, I'm a bit lonely. It's just that. On my soul, I believe it always is that at the bottom. When we feel lonely, we're miserable, and when we don't feel lonely, we're not. Other things don't matter except when they make us notice that we're alone. Constance looked at him with moist eyes and answered, Yes, I believe it is just that. He would have driven her home, but she, with the prudence of intrepid and experienced people, refused it. Her landlady was a Puritan who slept in the basement and was easily disturbed. As they said good night, he asked anxiously, We're chums now, aren't we? She counter-questioned with, What do you want? Oh, just to come in and out, he said, with eagerness, talk a bit, you know, swap ideas. To be consigned, though it was of her own choice, to a green and yellow omnibus full of brisk and dingy people from the pit, to end the evening by a solitary return to her lodgings where lights would be out and she must fumble for the chain of the front door. All this gave to Constance a foolish but poignant sense of isolation, of having missed fire in life. She saw from the window of the omnibus bareheaded women in exquisite cloaks leaning upon the arms of men who protected them and walking delicately beneath the great arcs of lights. There was something intimate in the relation of each couple. They carried with them a suggestion of romance. She was shut out from that aspect of existence, could only watch it with her own uncanny experience hugged tightly in her breast. At this moment she wanted it very badly, the prettiness, the protection, all the airy, fluffy way of taking things. The omnibus brought her to the tube station, and she sank into the burrow again, continuing automatically the cheap and undistinguished scurry to her cheap and undistinguished lair. But within the lift the real and dreadful words in their little frame awaited her. Be not deceived. The hard, inexorable quality of that eternity which is behind these illusory miseries and excitements struck her like a blow. She thought bitterly of Andrew's simple statement. One is growing older all the while. She ran forward along the years and came upon the final necessity of his death. Then she knew that even whilst she knelt at Muriel's shrine, she needed Andrew, and she hated that knowledge. Somewhere, somehow, even this, she supposed, had beauty and significance. But she was blinded, altogether overcome by her lassitude, by the reaction from the short and feverous evening. She, the brave lover of life, whispered with inward tears, I don't think I want to live any more. Then something within her exclaimed, Ah, do not be grieved. I cannot bear it. It is horrible. 
I think it gives me pain. Surely it were better to die than to be hurt by these little foolish things. Instantly and absurdly, the social instinct, the craving for sympathy, awoke. Constance turned on her inner companion and said, I'm alone, so dreadfully alone, I can't endure it. It was an astonished voice which answered, Alone? Is that what matters? Must you always, for your comfort, be linked up with other creatures? And is that why I do not understand? She was intent on her own wretchedness and did not reply, until presently, to her amazement, he said gently, Am I no use to you? Can I not help? Then she was conscious of a tiny inward revolution, and with it of the birth of some new thing. He said, I do not want you to be lonely. Ah, be happy again with the beautiful colors and shapes. Are these not sufficient for your joy? A strange pain has come between us. It pushes. Because of it, I want to help you if I can. Do not suffer. It is so horrible that you should have pain. She asked him with eagerness, Do you really care? He answered, Yes, I don't know why, but somehow I am sorry for your sadness. It hurts me, and I want you to be glad. And then, as in the glorious moment when he saw the shining tree, he added, I think that I begin to understand. Grateful for this strange and unexpected sympathy, companioned by it, she came home, crept up the dingy staircase to her room. She took off the evening dress slowly and wearily. Already the black crepe de chine looked crushed and sad. The blind was up. The window opened wide for coolness' sake. As she raised her eyes from a careful folding of the satin skirt, which might have to do duty many other times, she saw far up the mighty and eternal stars that peered through the summer haze. Again she had the sensation of a white and changeless ring set about her. Again she remembered the hateful, incisive words that were set on the wall of the lift. Then both were obliterated by Andrew's figure, solid and imperturbable, fixed upon the margin of her life. The watcher had exclaimed in his bitterness, It is we that are mocked, hoodwinked, and made helpless. But now there was a grieving and strangely humanized voice which murmured, I am sorry for the sorrow of my friend. End of chapter 8